Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Isabella of France Biography. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. And as you've heard today, we are reviewing Isabella of France, Queen Consort of Edward II, often known as the She-Wolf of France. Oh, that's a cool name. It is. <laughs> we haven't had many um, consorts that have had cool like names like, I don't know, Matilda Barelegs or whatever. Oh, that means something very different when you <laughs> yes. use it in that context. But you know what I mean. So I'm expecting good things already. Uh, we're going to see whether she deserves her reputation as one of England's most notorious queens. Uh, hers is one of the most dramatic stories in English royal history, so we are going to split her into two episodes. So we'll review her next time, but today we're just going to be doing her biography. I reckon that um, that works well. It gives me a... Um... <laughs> I was about to say, it gives me a, a background for when we do the factors, but that's true every time. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't help at all. So you'll effectively have heard it twice, and it should probably start to see sinking yeah. in. Yeah, and on a more basic level, I'm sort of getting the hang of the format. Yeah, slowly but surely. Mm. I think basically for you with this one, the key thing to remember if you start forgetting her, though I don't think you will, is So Female So from Braveheart. Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, no, I can't unforget that. That that's definitely who she is now. But forget all of the events that occur. Yeah, that's that's the easy bit. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as we'll see, her life and queenship is punctuated by a series of conflicts with various antagonists. So we're going to use that uh, as our foundation for this episode. Introduction. So, Isabella of France was born in about 1295 in Paris, the daughter of Philip the Fair, or King Philip IV of France, and Joan I of Navarre, the Queen Regnant of Navarre. So, apart from Catherine of Aragon, Isabella is the only queen to be the daughter of two reigning monarchs. I was going to say, straight away, it sounds like a fairy tale. <laughs> born in Paris, we know when. Her father is like a king called the Fair. I mean... What heritage there? Indeed, uh, the marriage between her parents brought the kingdom of Navarre as well as the counties of Champagne and Brie under French control. So Philip the Fourth is a very powerful uh, French king. So not only does Brie. Isabella Brie, yes, the cheese, yes, it's where it's from. I did the French name all of their <laughs> objects and foodstuffs after places and towns like cheddar. Okay. Fine, take it back. <laughs> it's just we don't have as many cheeses. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, where were we? Well, we're just talking about Isabella. Oh, yeah. Uh, so not only does she have a very, well, arguably the most prestigious lineage of any queen that we've co mm. uh, covered up to this point, she's also, like her father and three brothers, uh, extremely attractive. The chronicler Froissart described her as one of the fairest ladies of the world, while Geoffrey of Paris said that she was the beauty of beauties in the kingdom, if not in all Europe. Crikey. You know, she really is uh, hot stuff then, because it wasn't just things like she had a comely complexion. Yeah, and the fact that her father and brothers are also all nicknamed the Fair suggests that they're quite, oh, yeah. quite a beautiful family. Wow. 
Uh, her mother died when she was only 10 years old, so she seems to be something of a favourite of her father, who she remains close to, and he's quite indulgent of her because she's his only mm. daughter. <laughs> we know what that's like. Uh, tensions between England and France have been brewing for a number of decades over Gascony, which was the last of England's uh, dwindling Angevin Empire. Now, both of Edward I's marriages uh, were negotiated to ensure England's hold of the county for uh, the future. And for the same reason, Isabella is suggested as the wife for the son of Edward I, the future Edward II, when she's just four years old. Right. So she grows up not just with the status of being this princess of France, daughter of two reigning monarchs, but also aware of her future as the Queen of England. So obviously mm. that sense of destiny and that self of sense in self-importance um, very much at the core for Isabella's personality. God, you're hard to avoid, right? Mm. When you're, that's amazing. But hang on. So does that mean is did Edward have an eye to the French throne in mind then for his son? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it was more just that if well, not exactly the other way round. But for Philip the Fourth, he's thinking, well, this will mean that next King of England will be my son-in-law, so I can probably have a bit more control over what's going on in Gascony. Right. But in return, I'll stop trying to steal it from you. <laughs> it's brilliant when you can put it so basically like that. <laughs> it really is playground stuff. Edward I never actually finalised the marriage arrangements, but on becoming king in 1307, Edward II was much quicker to do so. Uh, so they were married in magnificent ceremony in Boulogne Cathedral on the 25th of January 1308, uh, with no less than five kings and three queens in attendance, including England's previous consort, Margaret of France. Oh, fantastic. Sounds amazing. Yeah, Isabella's wearing a jewelled robe of blue and gold with a crimson mantle with yellow lining, so it looks really very dramatic, and obviously it's this grand chivalric setting. Mm. All very impressive. But what of her husband, Edward II? Mm. Now, he's not got a particularly good reputation amongst the uh, annals of English kings, but he would probably have made a very good impression on Isabella. Um, he's 24 years old to her 12. Oh, dear. So a bit of an age gap at the start. Uh, but he's tall, handsome, and despite his depiction in Braveheart, he's also very strong. Right. So he's a good-looking fella. Mm. All the Edwards were, weren't they? Yeah. And whilst he had odd interests in sort of rustic pursuits like digging ditches, plastering walls, and swimming... Really? That's yeah. like um, uh, George the Third. Uh, oh, yes, yes. Yeah, he liked his farming and his pigs and stuff. Yeah. What was it he liked? You, you said again? Digging ditches? Yeah. Okay. That's Plastering weird. walls, swimming. Yeah, they get increasingly normal. He got the weird one in first. <laughs> Thatching roofs was another one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You might have gone. Yeah, I can't think I was just thinking that. <laughs> um, but he is also said to be quite charming, a very engaging personality. So for Isabella, it will seem like she's got this sort of chivalric ideal, king of England, tall, handsome, charming. Yeah, brilliant. Unfortunately, those first impressions soon begin to fade at their uh, joint coronation at Westminster Abbey. Um, which I think I previously stated that from Edward I and Ellen of Castile, there wasn't another one until Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. But no, it was in fact the next king. <laughs> but after that, I think they're on the yeah. um, So it's a joint coronation, which is nice for her. Um, and she's surrounded by her uncles, a, a brother, various French nobles. It's another big occasion. It should have been a great celebration 
of uh, the newly married couple, but instead the proceedings are dominated by the event's organiser, Piers Gaveston. Oh, here we go. But up to this point, though, even um, the coronation is as the Osborne Book of Long Ago would have had it. Yes. And how I imagine things, that it's a king and a queen. Yeah. And a queen is a just a female king. Even You know, <laughs> it's absolutely paint-by-numbers stuff here. And I guess that's from her perspective as well. It's everything that she's expecting to see. But mm. then it all goes a bit wrong. Piers Gaveston has the temerity to dress in uh, royal purple. He processes ahead of Edward and Isabella, and he carries the St. Edward's crown. Who was meant to? Well, probably one of the most senior nobles in the land, rather than this uh, this upstart. Okay. He's um, just being best man. Basically. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he takes being best man a little too literally in terms of uh, prominence. So at the banquet, he placed his <laughs> own coat of arms beside those of Edward's rather than obviously arranging Isabella's to be displayed. Oh, wow. That's like the table setting. Yeah, or the tapestries that are you know, all along the walls. So basically yeah. the branding for the coronation. Yeah, yeah, Edward yeah. And Gaveston. Wow. And at the banquet, he commands Edward's attention throughout, so Isabella is pretty much ignored by Edward. Oh, dear. Well, well she's only 12, though, isn't she? Like, he's only they're 12, their most annoying... She is only 12, but nevertheless, there's an extent to which you should do a little bit of uh, yeah. showing willing publicly. And there's already concerns among the French delegation that he hasn't provided for her yet in terms of her income and her estates. So the dishonour shown to her at the coronation ceremony added on top of this, her uncles are absolutely furious and report back to Philip the Fourth. Mm-hmm. Piers Gaveston. So who was this uh, rather mystery man that supplanted her place early on in her husband's affections? Well, Piers Gaveston is a fairly junior noble from Gascony who initially earned favour under Edward I, ironically. Uh, But he gets banished by uh, Edward I as a bad influence on his son. But as soon as Edward II becomes king, brings back Gaveston, and Gaveston experiences a meteoric rise, so he is made the Earl of Cornwall, which is traditionally a royal title. And when Edward is in Boulogne for the wedding, Gaveston is named as regent. Just because he's a mate? Just because he's a mate. Who would who would have an alternative been? Edward's... One of the various archbishops, one of the nobles, one of Edward's cousins just, or something like that. Just not his, like, reprimand best mate? Yeah. Okay. Um, now, it's also speculated that more than just his best mate, that they may even have been lovers. Well, who better to be a lover than your best mate? Well, indeed. (laughs) Uh, One chronicler observed that he did not remember to have heard that one man so loved another. (laughs) Specifically there, is he saying, not only um, can I not imagine this, but I I never even crossed my mind that two men might... Yeah, I'm not saying if you're saying that this is the strongest love there has ever been between two men, even for gay men, or if he's just saying, that's not a woman. Yeah, exactly. I can't quite work out his disbelief there. (laughs) Now, since much of the Queen's potential power derives from her sort of romantic and or sexual relationship with the King, if Piers Gaveston could lay claim uh, to Edward's heart and indeed Edward's bedroom, then this makes him a rather serious rival uh, for Edward's affections and can limit how effective Isabella can be as queen. He's really, he's mm. taking her place. Yeah. 
Oh gosh. So like a, uh, it's a power thing. Like mm. everyone who's behind her as well. Yeah. So all that sort of private influence that queens mm. get to have by virtue of being married to the king is imperiled if Gaveston mm. is playing that role. And it's one thing if it's in private, but if it's also in public, as we saw at the coronation ceremony, then that's really taking everything away from Isabella. Yeah, yeah. And she's got to then be seen to do something. Mm. Now, she's not on her own in her uh, opposition to Piers Gaveston. The nobles are also extremely angry at his prominence. Indeed, on the day of the coronation, many refused to attend unless Edward agreed to banish him from the country. Mm. Mm. He doesn't quite go that far initially. He does manage to fob them off for the main time. But Isabella maintains regular contact with her father, uh, the King of France. And he, of course, is angered at Edward's treatment of his daughter. And Philip IV intervenes in support of the nobles later in the year. And once Edward sees that the King of France is backing up the nobles, he decides that it's time to relent. And so in uh, 1308, end of the year, Piers Gaveston is exiled. Okay, let me just get work out that that power struggle again. So, uh, the nobles are annoyed because they d- can't use Isabella for influence. It's not that because they can't use Isabella for influence, it's just because Piers Gaveston has been given all these lands, all these titles, all uh, this prominence, so they're not getting it. So they're not specifically on Isabella's side, they're just another interested party. They're just another interested party. But I guess that the display at the coronation ceremony is so outrageous because Mm. by the normal order of things he should be giving prominence to Isabella. It's just Mm. another nail in the coffin for the nobles. They're like, no, we've got to do something about this guy. There's no end to which Edward won't go to promote this Mm. favourite. Oh, okay. But Philip IV, of course is purely motivated by what's happening to Isabella. He doesn't care whether the Earl of Lancaster or whatever is Mm. getting enough land, but if his daughter's not being respected, then that's when he's going to support those opposing Gaveston. Okay. So, 1308, Piers Gaveston uh, is exiled. Following year in 1309, Piers Gaveston is recalled. (laughs) Everyone all forgiven? Well, Piers Gaveston does rather go about mocking the nobles by giving them (laughs) insulting nicknames. Ah. And uh, he's displaying his favour with Edward with even more ostentation. So he's he's really doubling down on being Edward's favourite person. What an idiot. Then after a disastrous campaign against the Scots in 1311, Edward is forced by the nobles to accept various curbs on his power, including yet another exile for Piers Gaveston. Yeah, get the picture. I mean, get the message, rather. Surprisingly, however, Isabella is no longer part of this opposition to Gaveston. Mm, Pregnant? Well, not this point. And she actually wrote to her father in 1311 to arrange for Gaveston's safe conduct in France, as well as providing funds for him uh, from her own county of Pontieu. Because Philip's intervention earlier on has obviously had the desired effect, because from 1309, Edward enlarges Isabella's household, he ensures she's got various luxuries, that she's treated with more respect. So while Gaveston is still a source of anger for the nobles, he no longer seems to represent a threat to Isabella. Uh, Right. He's finally got a thought, you know, he's trying to restrict the number of enemies he has to deal with and just bung her a house. He's reduced his enemies by one. (laughs) She sounds a powerful one, though. She's uh, a... You know, I think she knows what she's in for, this one. Um, And indeed, actually, many of Isabella's close associates are part of Gaveston's uh, social circle, particularly the Beaumont family. So she may even have come to actually like Gaveston on a personal level. Hmm. Right. 
She certainly seems to have accepted the situation more than mm. when she first came over. Yeah. I suppose you wouldn't really at, at 12. Is it, are we still around that age now? Uh, she's now, what is, what are we, 13, 11, so she's 16 now. Yeah. Okay. So when Piers Gaveston is inevitably recalled in 1312, this provokes a war between Edward and his nobles, and Isabella is supporting Edward and Gaveston. Oh, right. Indeed, she tries to secure um, assistance from her uncles in France. Um, because this isn't the way. Kings can't be overthrown. Is that the basic thing? That's what, exactly. You know, she's got nothing really to gain. Yeah, at she's, all, she's married to Edward. She is the daughter of a king. She is team royal. Yeah. Uh, however, on their way north, um, the sudden arrival of the Earl of Lancaster's army throws the royal party into chaos, and Edward uh, abandons a now pregnant Isabella at uh, Tynemouth Priory on the northeast coast in order to flee with Piers Gaveston. Oh, my word. Is that as bad as it sounds, or is it one of those things where actually it's like three trains of massive amount of people and he had to flee? It's sort of that situation, and also it's for Isabella to flee whilst pregnant is actually not a particularly safe thing, thing to do. And Gaveston's the target, realistically. He's mm. the one they're after. So they're probably not even going to cap- bother capturing Isabella, but if they had done, there's no way that she would have been harmed. Mm. I see. And indeed, pretty soon she rejoins uh, Edward at York, but Gaveston's luck runs out. He surrenders at Scarborough Castle on promise of uh, safe treatment, but he's then snatched away by the more belligerent nobles and summarily executed. Well, is was he any any form of soldier though? Could he have like, when you know he gave up at that castle? Well, um, he's, I a... think he's, besi- he's, he's besieged at Scarborough Castle, so he negotiates and mm. they agree that he will surrender himself, there will be discussions with Edward, and if they aren't able to yeah. come to a deal, then Gaveston will go back to Scarborough Castle. Um, but I- I'm, try- I'm trying to picture the scene. Would he have been in armour, or is he actually like a just total No, he gentleman? was, a, again, ignore... Well, I suppose in Braveheart, he's not technically in Braveheart, is he? But the... Gaveston equivalent in Braveheart yeah. says that he's been studying military affairs. I mean, he wins. He initially got favour under Edward I because he was a knight. He served in oh, military right. campaigns and stuff. So you know, he, he does he does fight. Yeah. Okay. Again, he's not just lolling about being camp wearing silk and. It's hard to distance myself from those portrayals yeah. of sort of uh, uh, yeah of knightly court, especially in the age of um, chivalry and all that. Mm. You can imagine there might be room for people to be more yeah. relaxed rather There's than room for medieval. Both. Yeah. So basically, he, he surrenders because he's with. It's a more moderate noble that makes the agreement. Yeah. Uh, but then, when the more moderate noble goes to pick his wife up, the more belligerent ones just come along, abduct him, and kill him. Mm. Right. That's not going to sit well with Edward then. No, Edward is grief-stricken, and Isabella has a new enemy to confront. The Earl of Lancaster. So her new bête noire is Thomas, the second Earl of Lancaster. He is her half-uncle on his mother's side, as well as being a first cousin of Edward II, so he's thus connected to the English, French, and Navarrese thrones. Crikey, another blue-blooded chap. Indeed, he's the most powerful noble in the land, and he is the one who's really led the opposition against Edward II, and he is the one who is ultimately responsible for the murder of Piers Gaveston. 
Right. Okay, so he's in it up to his neck. He is in it up to his neck. Now, despite the family connection, Lancaster sees Isabella as his enemy at this point because he associates her with Piers Gaveston. Okay. So he clearly sees her as supporting Gaveston Mm. and thus opposing him. And the feeling does appear to be mutual. Isabella builds up a support network against him and the success of which is shown in 1316 when she secures the appointment of Louis de Beaumont as Bishop of Durham in opposition to a candidate put forward by Lancaster. So this is all part of her helping to build a rival power block in the north of England. Mm. Right. But... Not happy relations with her half-uncle, but with Edward II and Isabella, things are getting rather better. Uh, Gaveston's death meant Isabella was now unrivaled in Edward's affections, and the birth of a son and heir, the future Edward III, just four months after Gaveston's death, helps to really cement a new closeness between the two. And as you pointed out earlier, she was only 12 when they got married, so it is kind of unsurprising that he wasn't that interested in her. But now... They travel together all the time. He makes lavish grants of land and money, orders all of the Queen's gold that had been earned since her coronation to be paid to her. And they have a regular, if not prolific, output of children over the next decade. So all evidence points to it actually being a pretty well-functioning marriage and relationship. Well, that's lovely. Hmm. And as uh, one sign of what Isabella can bring uh, to Edward, in 1313, after the birth of Edward III, they were welcomed in Paris... Uh, as honoured guests of her father for this golden chivalric summer. So nobles flocked from across Europe for the knighting of around 200 men, including Isabella's brothers. And because Edward is married to Isabella, he is treated as a revered part of the French royal family, which is obviously in sharp contrast to the way that he's been treated at home by the nobles. Yeah. Oh, he must have got a, a, a taste for it and thought, we could just live out here in Gascony. <laughs> this is ours. It'd be, you, know, you start to make those dreams when you're out on holiday. How, this could really be feasible. Yeah. We'll just work from home. I just, I'm just going to do some of these sums. I think we could, I think we could make this work. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. Just bear with me. Bear with me. Give up the extension on Windsor. I know. I know. <laughs> um, and, you know, and we can see the closeness of them. The fire breaks out in their apartments in uh, Pontoise. Uh, destroys most of their belongings, and Edward very heroically rescues Isabella uh, from the flames. Oh, wow. He, like, carries her out. She's left with serious burns to her arm, which require treatment for the next two years, but... Uh, Crikey. That's properly, then. Uh, that Normally, um, it, uh, the newspapers have run the headline... Um, <laughs> what's his name? William saves Catherine from... Uh, crush and it just shows them driving down the road miles away from something but that actually was um, a proper fireman job yeah wow I like him yeah it's going really well for both of them at this point well it's going well for them as a marriage Isabella's Mm. position as queen is certainly improving but unfortunately as king Edward's position is not really doing very well His disastrous defeat in the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314 forced him to largely cede control of the government to the Earl of Lancaster. Oh, that was after all this then? This is after their European jaunt? He has a lovely time in Paris, comes back, thinks, I'm going to fight the Scots. (laughs) I've got a renewed vim and vigour. (laughs) Oh dear, brilliant. I've made a huge mistake. So Lancaster is now in control of the government, basically, for the next few years, but he proves no more effective, actually, than Edward, and Edward's looking for a chance to defeat him once and for all. 
1321, Isabella provides him with a casus belli when she took a very off-piste trip to Leeds Castle while on pilgrimage to Canterbury. Well, they should point out Leeds Castle is in Kent, so it's not that far from Canterbury, but it's nevertheless not en route. Mm. Uh, so she goes to Leeds Castle and she demands entry, despite the fact that she knows that the family who own the castle are very much Team Lancaster rather than Team Edward. Right. So she is refused entry, and indeed her party is fired on. Oh, my word. Uh, and this provides Edward with the excuse he needs to uh, get his troops into action and do some work. And given Isabella's status and her popularity as queen, this is also a rallying call for the more no- moderate nobles to support Edward rather than Lan- uh, Lancaster and the other rebels. Which hasn't been going well. Mm. So uh, why did they fire? Surely th- I was imagining you were going to say it was a, a frosty... Uh dinner party not <laughs> closing the doors and uh, firing up. arrows yeah well, I think Isabella ordered her men to force an entry so she's like I'm queen so I'm going in whether you let me in or not I am coming in and she, she was uh, okay still I just feel like it, it is still shouldn't the queen. have come to that yeah, yeah. Mm. um and indeed, the war is successful for Edward. He defeats the rebel nobles, and uh, Lancaster himself is defeated and captured at the Battle of Boroughbridge, and, like Piers Gaveston, summarily executed. So, what, which battle was that? Uh, Boroughbridge. It's not really much of a battle, to be honest. He's outnumbered and surrounded. Oh. But Piers Gaveston has been avenged, Edward and Isabella are triumphant, and this should mark a new start, both for Edward's kingship and also... Uh, Isabella's status as his queen and confident. It's all up from this point. Yeah, the film, that was the end of Act 2. Yeah. Like they had to, it had to go into, ooh, what's going to happen? But now, done. Yeah. Because no, there's no more trouble now, right? This is a point at which he builds Camelot and it's all yeah. perfect and wonderful. Mm. Instead, it's the uh, dawn of a downward spiral, both in their relationship and Edward's reign, because there is a rise of a new favourite. Hugh Dispenser, the younger. So Hugh Dispenser is, in a sense, the new Piers Gaveston. He's a male favourite, promoted in power to excess by Edward II, and we've got rumours of a homosexual relationship. Yeah. Uh, he and his father, who's also called Hugh, hence the younger or elder suffixes, um, both prominent in Edward's service for many years, but from about 1318, uh, Hugh Dispenser, the younger, has become... Edward's clear favourite. While Gaveston had sort of been flamboyant, but mostly harmless, at least from Isabella's perspective, Dispenser is a rather more malevolent figure. He seeks not just the trappings of power, but also the exercise of power. Ah, that's a rather different kettle of fish. Mm. And what's more, the Dispenser seemed to have had a personal beef with Isabella, um, because in 1321 she had encouraged Edward to cede to the demands of the nobles to exile the dispensers Mm. right good so she's now there's a rift forming yeah so in response they refused to pay her money owed from her properties at bristol and uh, latchlade and when she approaches edward about this he fails to take any action oh edward it's a chronicle froissart stated the said sir hugh dispenser achieved great hate in all the realm and specially of the queen and of the earl of kent brother to the king and when he perceived the displeasure of the queen by his subtle wit he set great discord between the king and the queen so that the king would not see the queen nor come in her company 
And indeed, 1321 oh. does seem to make uh, for something of a turning point in the marriage. They don't have any children, any more children after this point, whereas they had been having a fairly regular output beforehand. And Isabella is given a much less prominent role as queen. And then a permanent breach really comes in 1322, when yet another disastrous campaign for Edward into Scotland sees Isabella once again abandoned at uh, Tynemouth, and she has to make a very narrow escape from the Scottish army. Her squires fight a rearguard action while she's bundled onto a boat, and uh, two of her ladies die in the process. Wow. Wow. I can't... Well, how is... I mean, this is a technical point that I'm not expecting you to answer, but it, on a boat, it's not a great getaway. Unless it's not the age of a speedboat. No, obviously you have very choppy waters up there as well, but it's it's all they've got. She's cut off, basically, from everywhere else. So the Scots have got that enclave or whatever. Oh, hang surrounded. on, a boat out to sea? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, okay, I thought you meant just like on a river. the lake. <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're sort of just walking next to her on the river saying, when you stop, we're just going to stab you. <laughs> no, it is to sea, so she pops down the coast. Mm. Oh, gosh, that does sound, that sounds really hairy. And uh, she is very, very upset with Edward and obviously despises the dispensers with a passion now, very much blaming them for uh, her abandonment. She's yeah. got no desire to remain at her court anymore, so she sets off on a 10-month pilgrimage around England. Um, how does that follow? Well, she just doesn't want to be at court anymore, so she just oh, an excuse, excuse to go somewhere okay. else. Yeah, it, it's a business weekend. Yeah. Equivalent, yeah. Now, this change from affection to hostility in the marriage was also reflected in the relationship between England and France, where Isabella's brother, Charles IV, is now king. So in 1324, uh, a conflict over the construction of a fortified town in Gascony sees Charles order an invasion of the county, uh, which results mm. in significant French gains. So in response, Edward orders the arrest or expulsion of all French citizens in England and confiscates all land in England owned by French citizens. Oh, God. That's extreme, isn't it? Aren't they mostly French? Well, indeed. And even Isabella has her lands removed and her servants, or her French servants, are all either expelled or arrested if they stay with her. Why has he turned into such a ninny? And what's more, her queen's gold is now diverted into Edward's coffers, which means that Isabella is reliant on her upkeep from the Exchequer, which is controlled by Hugh Dispenser. Oh. Oh, that's a, this is a real shame. Mm. And what's more, Dispenser's wife, Eleanor de Clare, seems to have been detailed to spy on Isabella. Twist the knife, it, it did get worse. Mm. So Isabella writes to her brother complaining that she's been treated like a maidservant. Mm. I bet they did. Oh, dear. Now, despite this, when Edward realises that he couldn't afford to make war on France and his first peace embassy failed to secure acceptable terms, it's to Isabella that he turns for a solution. <laughs> right. How did he put that? Bunch of flowers? <laughs> yeah. Would you um, mind... It's just... Uh, just uh... <laughs> But to be fair, she probably would have been very receptive to it. The Vita Edwardi recorded that the Queen departed very joyfully, pleased in fact to visit her native land and her relatives, pleased to yeah. leave the company of some whom she did not like. Yeah. Oh, but they did. They've got a memory of being happy together. They did. But so that 
I mean, it feels like there's been some some brain event, like Henry VIII or something, for him to suddenly turn. Or just reverting to uh, type. Hmm. She made a grand entrance into Paris and related to her brother, the king, all the injustices she had faced. She answered him right sagely and lamentably recounted to him all the felonies and injuries done to her by Sir Hugh Dispenser and required him of his aid and comfort. When the noble King Charles of France had heard his sister's lamentation, who weepingly had shown him all her need and business, he said to her, Fair sister, appease yourself, for by the faith I owe to God and to Saint-Denis, I shall right well purvey for your remedy." Um, I shall what now? Sort it out. Right. Now, Isabella did secure better terms uh, with France for a bit of peace with Gascony. Uh, And to confirm the peace treaty, uh, Edward is going to come to France and pay homage to Charles in person. Mm -hmm. But he is dissuaded from doing so by the dispensers who fear that they will be attacked if he leaves the country in the way that Piers Gaveston was obviously attacked when he was separated from Edward. Yeah, so they know that they're royals. Oh, yeah. yeah, they know that they are despised by the nobles and people in general. Right. So they Gosh. think we can't really afford Edward to leave because we'll get lynched. Yeah. People are weird, aren't they? That is so <laughs> weird. That they can be like, exist like that and that would be a possibility. What a strange world. So Edward isn't going to go, but we still need the peace treaty to happen and we still need homage to be done. So instead of Edward II, it is acceptable for him to send in his stead his eldest son, Prince Edward. Mm. So Prince Edward will go to France. Um, Edward II grants him Ponceau and Aquitaine in his own right, so thus to kind of give him a certain constitutional significance to go for the Gascony. He will pay homage to the French king, and once that's been done, Isabella and Prince Edward will immediately return to England. Right. But they don't. Why? And we'll find out why after a quick break. There's much debate about what Isabella's doing at this point, whether she's got a grand plan, if she's been swept along by events. Um, We can debate that later when we come to review her. But for the time being, the important thing is that she remains in France throughout the summer and it's increasingly clear that she doesn't plan to return home anytime soon. No, I wouldn't either. The question is, though, to what end? Because obviously she's also not returning Prince Edward either, so the king's wife and heir are both just sticking about in Paris. Mm-hmm. Now, as we've been saying, Edward and the Dispensers, incredibly unpopular and increasingly discontented nobles start to flock to Isabella in Paris Mm. or certainly are opening communications with her from England if they don't go. And there's growing evidence now for Edward that Isabella is, at the very least, having some concerning chats with people that don't like him. Right. So with her refusing his orders to come home, he stops paying her expenses and he sends an envoy to publicly demand that she return home. So when this is put to Isabella, who is, you know, just basically in the French court in company of her king and his nobles, uh, Mm. she makes her position very clear in response. I feel that marriage is a joining of a man and woman holding fast to the practice of a life together, but someone has come between my husband and myself and is trying to break the bond. I declare that I will not return until this intruder is removed, but discarding my marriage garment shall put on the robes of widowhood and mourning until I am avenged of this Pharisee. 
Wow. That's, that's damning stuff. But, you know, that's quite a good um, uh, bargaining position. Mm. And as I said, she's in the company of her brother, the King of France, and he immediately backs her up. He says, The Queen has come of her own will and may freely return when she wishes. But if she prefers to remain in these parts, she is my sister, and I refuse to expel her. Yeah. Yeah, he's, they're sitting pretty. They've got all of the, you know, that protocol is on their side here. Yeah, and Isabella on her own would have been a powerful figure around whom opposition could centre, but she's got the support of the King of France, and, mm. crucially, she's got possession of Edward's son and heir. Yeah, that's great. And she just, so doesn't need the money, it's fine. Uh, Edward, of course, now realises that this is a little bit problematic and starts writing furious letters to Isabella, Charles IV, the Pope, uh, demanding Isabella is returned. He tells Isabella that her absence is arousing fears of an invasion, accusing her of wishing to destroy a people so devoted to you for the hatred of one man. Mm. Obviously, it doesn't occur to him to just, you know, get rid of that one man. Yeah, or twist, turn that argument on its head and look what he's risking all for this one man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but his entreaties are in vain, and Isabella now has in her company Edward's most notorious enemy, a Welsh marcher lord who in 1323 became only the second man to escape from the Tower of London and who spent the last two years trying to raise support in Europe for an invasion of England. And his name is Roger Mortimer. Oh... How did he get? Was he the one that escaped um, out of Edward's Tower? You know, the one that, next to the river? Climbed what? out of a window or something? Yeah, I think he just climbed out of it. I don't know if it's that tower, but yeah, he does climb out of, a, climb out of the river. Because obviously not many people have escaped from the Tower of London. Yeah, yeah. There should be like a, a, a uh, roll of honour in there that all those <laughs> have escaped. Yeah, so this is Roger Mortimer. He becomes Isabella's closest ally, her military leader, and, most likely, her lover. Oh, yeah, I mean, poor woman, I suppose, you know, she's never going back to Edward now, is she? I thought you just just leaned in there. I thought you were leaning in for your scandal, Bill. No, I've misplaced her. Um, Oh, no, I haven't. Hang on. There we are. Buried behind my... um, Speakers. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, in that case. Um, they would have encountered each other at court previously, but they most likely sort of met properly in Paris in a, about 1325. So his military skills and experience, his connections in Europe, combined with Isabella's status and, of course, Prince Edward's legitimacy, makes for a very powerful alliance. Mm. Mm. Hang on, no, what, what does he bring? So he's a Welsh marcher lord, so he's a an experienced military leader, and also he spent the last two years going about courts of Europe trying to gather support for an invasion. Okay. And the fact that he is now with Isabella and his own Mm. son. Yeah. That's that they've got so they've got a uh, a rival for the throne there. They could that their whole purpose has become clear. They've got someone they can replace him with. Indeed. So early in thirteen twenty six, Edward ramps up the pressure on uh, King Charles IV and the Pope playing the part of the wronged husband. Um, yeah. And it's enough to get the Pope to order Charles to expel Isabella from his court on pain of excommunication. This is sometimes suggested that Isabella had lost her brother's support, but in reality it's just a show of compliance. Charles doesn't follow her, he doesn't impede her, and he knows exactly mm. what she's doing. She goes to Hainaut, 
where Roger Mortimer had been, and formalises an alliance. So in return for a marriage between Isabella's son Edward and uh, one of the daughters of the Count of Hainaut, uh, the Count will supply soldiers, ships and resources for an invasion of England. Okay, brilliant. It's kicking off. So Isabella and Mortimer, with the Count of Hainaut's army, land at Orwell in uh, Suffolk with a small force. No way. Orwell. Orwell, yeah. Blimey, that, I mean, I've sailed into there. That is a tricky river. Mm. Um, brilliant. <laughs> I had no idea that was, uh, they'd landed there. That's quite, very exciting. Did people flock to your banner when you were... No, no, very, <laughs> very few, if anyone, actually. Um, but, well, they do for Isabella. Some of England's most senior nobles, including Edward's two half-brothers, uh, are now in her entourage. Edward's regime is so unpopular that people are just flocking to Isabella. Town after town offers no resistance, just opens its gates to her. So seeing that the country is against them, Edward and Hugh Despenser flee from London and Isabella follows them across the country uh, towards Wales. Right. Uh, She stops to besiege the castle at Bristol and captures the elder Hugh Despenser who is brought out in chains and, as is the case at the moment, summarily executed. Yeah, that's not going well, is it, for justice? Um, Edward II sets off for Ireland, and so he is adjudged to have left the country without proper government. So the nobles and the bishops all agree that Prince Edward will be designated guardian of the realm in absence of his father. Okay, and how old is he now? Uh, He's 15. Oh, fine. That's That's totally all right, isn't it? So in that, well, in that day and age. So obviously that means that re- in reality Isabella is effectively yeah. guardian of the realm. Uh, Edward doesn't make it to Ireland, so he's forced to come back to Wales. Then he and Hugh Despenser are captured on a mountain path on the 16th of November, and the war is over. Mm. What happens? Well, like his father, uh, Hugh Despenser is summarily executed. But the awkward question is, what is Isabella going to do with her husband? Now, it's one thing to claim temporary power in the king's name. It's quite another thing to make this permanent. Because no living king in England has been removed from the throne. And the whole basis of English law rests on Crown's authority. Yeah. I can't believe this hasn't happened yet. It's happened in Scotland by now, yeah? Well, I mean, we've had, obviously, like, 1066 and something like that. But that's, like, a violent, you know, there's a battle and the old king is killed new situation we've never had a situation where there is a king and he's there but we say there's no just not be king anymore yeah yeah there's no uh, documents for this yeah exactly this is not meant to happen technically it, isabella when she invaded had claimed to be acting only against the dispensers mm. but she and the country have come too far just to put edward back on the throne again mm, yeah So in 1327, Isabella calls Parliament, and Edward II is accused of a series of crimes against the country, including breaking his coronation oath, and Parliament concludes that Edward II should abdicate the throne in favour of his son, whilst Isabella, for the great anxiety and anguish that she had suffered, will be granted the title of Queen for life. So they are trying to make up some law around this, they're trying to make it official? Yeah. Um, Now, as Edward III, as he now is, is acclaimed as king, Isabella apparently seemed as if she would die for sorrow and broke down in tears. Why? Well, we don't know whether it was the enormity of the situation and everything she'd been through, the release 
um, of you know winning and being secure, or is it a more cynical act that she wants to look like? You know, this is a very troubling thing for her husband, her son, etc., etc. But apparently, it's so affected with the third that he declares he won't accept the crown uh, unless it's agreed that his father will actually formally abdicate. It, what that's mid mid ceremony that all this admin is suddenly done. Yeah. Oh man, it's like, it's like a um, EastEnders. So a delegation of twenty four men goes off to Kenilworth, where Edward's currently being held, um, and after threatening him with a probably pretty unlikely scenario of the entire Plantagenet dynasty being supplanted, uh, Edward II agreed of his own goodwill to cede the throne to his son. Mm. So he does officially abdicate. Rex fact. That's brilliant. Now, the presence of two living kings, albeit one of them abdicated, is, Mm. as you can imagine, problematic. Uh, And following a number of plots to rescue um, Edward II, the situation indeed seems rather untenable. But, thankfully... And somewhat conveniently, on the 21st of September 1327, almost exactly a year after Isabella first landed, it was announced that Edward II had died. Oh, natural causes. That sounds very natural. Supposedly natural. of natural causes, though many suspect murder. <laughs> um, suspect? I mean, it just was, right? Well... It's it's very much uh, something of debate. We'll talk about that more in uh, next time, actually, in the okay. review section. Uh, but there's one more significant person that we need to be talking about. Edward III. Edward III! So Isabella, obviously, is no longer Queen Consort, but instead she is now Queen Mother. Um, but as we said, Edward III is only 15 years old, so the reality is that Isabella and Roger Mortimer are still in charge of the country. Uh, There's no opposition to Isabella holding this power, so no one in theory thinks that there's any problem with this, but her popularity Mm. does quickly disappear. Uh, In 1328, she made incredibly unpopular peace treaties with France, and particularly with Scotland, Uh, and she and Mortimer are both somewhat rapacious when it comes to land, money, and titles. So Isabella is now the uh, the greatest landowner in the country, whilst Mortimer creates himself as the Earl of March, uh, adopts increasingly regal airs and presides over tournaments where he styles himself as King Arthur and holds precedence even over Edward III. Oh, oh yes! Yeah, yeah, I've just remembered the start of the other film. Mm. But the challenge for Isabella and Mortimer and all of this, of course, is Edward III. So he's an awkward age, really, at 15. Well, I mean, it's, it's an awkward age, generally, yeah. but particularly for a regency, he's not quite old enough to rule in his own stead but at the same time he's not very far off that being the case yeah and he is increasingly disenchanted with what they are doing in his name he despises the peace treaty in scotland and is very publicly opposed to it and he's also angered that isabella refuses to have a coronation for his new wife philippa of hainaut for two years and she only mm. relents uh, when philippa is pregnant right well, uh, of hainaut so he doesn't get nearly the um, princess that his mother was? No, no. Why is that? Just because they'd fall, they were falling out for most of the reign. So when it came to well, it was the marriage. It was the um, that was part of the alliance with Hainaut that they got the troops, and in return for oh. which Edward will marry one of the daughters. I see. 
But we still have this situation where there's a sense that there can only be one queen. And Isabella yeah. wants to be the Queen of England, and so she doesn't give Philippa a coronation ceremony until it's absolutely necessary. Oh, right, yeah, because she then isn't the Queen of England. Mm. Oh, man. And the breaking point for Edward comes in 1330, when Edward's uncle, the Earl of Kent, is executed for treason, despite the fact that Edward wants to pardon him. But Isabella and Mortimer basically push it through. Oh, that is awful. So Edward is now 17 years old, so obviously still very young by modern standards, but certainly ready to be a man, ready to be a king in his own right. His wife has been crowned, and first son, who's the Black Prince, as he will become known, has been born. And Roger Mortimer is increasingly paranoid about what's going on with Edward. He tries to fill his household with men loyal to him and Isabella, but there's a young group of knights who are loyal to Edward, uh, particularly led by a young man called William Montague, and Montague urges Edward that it was better to eat dog than to be eaten by the dog. And thus they hatch a plot to free Edward. Okay. So, they're going to rescue him. Edward pretends to be ill so that he can go off somewhere else for the night, um, while Montague led troops in via a secret entrance into the castle in order to mm. capture Roger Mortimer. They found the Queen Mother almost ready for bed and the Earl of March, whom they wanted. They led him captive into the hall, while the queen cried, Fair son, fair son, have pity on gentle Mortimer, for she suspected that her son was there, though she had not seen him. God, this is quite an, an uh, vivid picture this person paints. Was it, Were they there? Was... <laughs> Just writing. <laughs> say that, no, say that it? again, there was a lot of swords there. I didn't quite... <laughs> sounded like you said something quite pithy. <laughs> Yeah, but if I say it again, it will have it won't sound cool because the uh, <laughs> moment will be gone. Go on, James Bond, say it again. I just said he doesn't have a head for heights, you know. <laughs> anyway, the regency is over. Edward III takes full charge of his kingdom. Uh, Roger Mortimer is put on trial at Westminster and charged with uh, numerous uh, crimes before being drawn and hanged as a traitor and an enemy of the king and of the realm. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that. If you, if your thing is royalty, you are a royal. Mm. He spent his whole life um, gathering troops to rebel or just being king himself. Like mm. He was never getting out of there alive, was he? No, it's probably just out of care for his mother's feelings that Edward doesn't have Mortimer courted or disemboweled. Oh, uh, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. But what of Isabella's fate? Because mm. she's been part of all of this, obviously. Oh, yeah. So what's to be done? She is initially deprived of her lands and put under house arrest uh, in Windsor Castle, but she does represent something of a quandary for Edward because she is obviously, first and foremost, his mother. Mm. But she's also, you know, Princess of France, Queen of England. He needs to restore the authority and the standing of the English crown, so he can't really afford to drag his mother's name through the mud or it's going to affect him as well. So consequently, all the evils of the Regency, as well as obviously the deposition and death of his father, are all blamed on Roger Mortimer. So officially, at least, Isabella is reduced to just being Mortimer's passive victim rather than a big player in everything that happened. Right. But that's not true. It's not true, but that's the official line that Edward III will take. Yeah. It's easier, isn't it? It's easier. Um, what she makes of all of this, we don't know. She almost certainly would have grieved for Mortimer, but she would have to have done it in a way that was private and doesn't cause any further estrangement uh, with her son. 
But it does seem that Edward was reluctant to reconcile with her, so the Pope actually intercedes with Edward on Isabella's behalf. Hmm. He heard that the king was not showing signs of filial affection to his mother, Queen Isabella. Should she have done anything to justify the king's behaviour to her, the Pope exhorts him to remember what his mother has done for him and what enmity and ill will she has provoked in his service and begs him to show mercy so that he himself may find it in the day of judgment. But from Edward's point of view, she's killed his father Mm. and let her lover be king instead of him. Yes, that's Edward's beef with his mother. But from her point of view, she was protecting him when he was a baby from his uh, father who was not caring for them. And the evil of the dispensers. And then She secured the future of the Plantagenet dynasty, you could say, because it didn't get so bad that the Plantagenets are kicked off altogether. It's just Edward II. But then it just... That could have been forgiven if, if when he reached the right age, just handed power over to him. But she went a little bit odd at the end with um, Roger. the whole, uh, yeah, and, and the coronation business with his wife. Um, perhaps crucially, uh, Isabella's daughter-in-law, Philippa of Hainaut, also intercedes with Edward for Isabella. Mm. So in 1332, she's released from house arrest and bases herself predominantly at Castle Rising in uh, Norfolk. Mm. Uh, she has her lands restored. A granddaughter is born to Edward and Philippa that year, and she is named Isabella in honour of her grandmother. Huh. Blimey. And surprisingly, Isabella now fulfills just a very traditional role of queen mother, as if this is just all normal stuff, nothing odd to see here. She settled with an income of £5,000 a year, which is about £3 million in today's money. Yeah. Okay, I'll... I too will settle. (laughs) Uh, She's given all the deference and luxuries that she'd always felt uh, were her due. And she also, of course, can see her eldest son become one of England's most successful monarchs. He unites the nobles uh, and oversees some remarkable victories in battle against France. And you really do get the the feeling that just settling down into the role of Queen Mother with three million in your back pocket, she's not at all happy. She'd much rather be the involved in all of the what's it. And she is. She's not completely quiet. She's not a reclusive figure. She's not staying away from court. She's often there for grand occasions. Um, her children and grandchildren visit her frequently at Castle Rising. Uh, she particularly seems to be close to the Black Prince, and she leaves him the bulk of her property, including Castle Rising. Uh, but she's not just being a chummy grandmother who's not really into this politics stuff anymore. She continues to be uh, an important diplomatic figure because she is still this royal French uh, person. So Mm. when uh, King Jean II of France is captured at the Battle of Poitiers in 1356, um, he's in England for a number of years and she is part of the team that helps to negotiate a treaty with France and the ransom and release of the French king. So she is still... Uh even at this stage, involved in this sort of high-level diplomatic talks. I see. So she's actually useful still. Yes. I mean, that's what Edward will be thinking, isn't it? Yeah, she is still useful. But by August of 1358, her health is uh, finally failing her. She seems to have taken something of an overdose of her uh, medication, or at least a higher dose than would be advisable. So I'm not sure whether it's because of this or her illness more generally. Um, but she dies 
at Hartford Castle on the 22nd of August, 1358, at the age of 63. Very good going. Um, can we claim that as a Rex fact, uh, Rex fact that she killed herself? Well, I wasn't sure, to be honest, because when this came up in various books, no one seemed to be suggesting that that's what it was. But I was thinking, well, that's kind of what that sounds like. What everyone's like. saying? Yeah. yeah. It's like no one admitting that this person was killed by a car. It wasn't, it wasn't a car crash, but she was in the car and died shortly after of injuries sustained hmm. in the car crash. Now, it's sometimes said that she chose to be buried with Roger Mortimer at Greyfriars, mm. which, would, again, would have been quite a statement, but uh, in reality, that it was just a temporary resting place for uh, Roger Mortimer, and he actually ended up somewhere else. In reality, she asked to be buried in her wedding mantle, clutching a silver casket that contained the heart of Edward II. Ew. I mean, I know what you're getting at, but... <laughs> Could it not just be... Generally symbolic, rather. Do we need the literal heart there? We know what you're getting at. Uh, and while we're at it, silver, yeah. Have you heard of tin? <laughs> <laughs> well, Edward III does not seem to have been operating on a tight budget for his mother's funeral. Uh, he commissions a grand tomb for her, uh, pays for three cloths of gold to be placed on her tomb, and 300 wax torches to burn around it all year round. Oh dear, you see the trouble with that is that's going to stop at some point. Well, yes. <laughs> and then, you know, someone has to make that decision. It's like turning the uh, ventilator off. You know, actually, when does... Do we know when that happened? Did it keep going for a couple of hundred when years? Did Pilgrims did it off? I don't know. Let's just blame it on Henry VIII. It's usually his fault. Yes. Correspondence Corner. So that was the life and consortship of Isabella of France. Uh, let us know what you uh, thought about it. You can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod. Like the RexFactorPodcast Facebook page and email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And remember to send in your hashtag consort cards with an episode image uh, for Isabella or indeed for any of our queen consorts that we've had thus far. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use, or you can donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get lots of bonus episodes at www.patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. And we have got various new-ish, not-so-new Privy Councillors to welcome <laughs> to the fold. Luke Burrows, Stephanie Cloutier, Jungles81, Jessica Dwyer, Taylor Pussman, Sabina and Troy, R. Brailsford, Mandalay 2, TZ Hangock, Heather Allison Campbell, William Kavanagh, Chrissy Pax, Vistix 99, Spot MFD, Vida Jane, Georgina Sadler, Jason Byrne, Carrie Seymour, Sophie Warren, Emily Adu, Mark Stoltus, and Andrew, or to give him his chosen username from the old Potbean days, hashtag remember Dunstan. <laughs> oh, that was quite beavers and butthead, wasn't it? <laughs> no time for messages today because it's such a packed episode, so that will be all from us. Uh, join us next time, though, where we will review Isabella of France factor by factor and decide whether she has got the Rex factor. I forgot to say thank you to those new people. Thank you, new people. I just laughed at you all and then, yeah. <laughs> and then stopped. You just started right, talking well, about beavers and butthead instead. Yeah, 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 fine. Well, that seems an appropriate note on which to end. Cheerio.